Hello and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, entering a brand new year, 2022, celebrating the gift of conversation with people who have something to say. We begin the year with the story of an American patriot, a dedicated foreign service officer for many, many years, Gregory Hicks, currently the communications director for a private company called Gemini, working in conjunction with the U.S. Defense Department to keep us safe. Check out an earlier podcast in my series with Gemini's founder, Victoria Bondi. Greg and I are about to talk about the State Department, about working for the diplomatic corps, and if his name sounds familiar to you, it should. He was a former top U.S. diplomat in Libya, and several years ago he testified in front of the House Oversight and Government Reforms Committee, shedding light on the September 11, 2012 attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, which killed four Americans, including U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens. Greg was a close working associate and friend with Chris and with those who helped defend the consulate with their lives. So join us now as we reflect on that key historical event, as well as a life led in service to his country, as we welcome Gregory Hicks on mic. Let's start with where Gregory Hicks hails from, because your guy has been in different locales, including Boston, for a while. That's right. I, I was born in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, and you say it the right way. I do. Oregon. Oregon. <laughs> my, my grandfather was the head of the biology department at the University of Oregon, and so... Uh, that was where my father met my mother, and, and they are both Oregon alumni. My father's deceased. He died mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they started life. I was born there, and my dad graduated from college and got a job with the Army and Air Force Exchange Service. Well, that sort of gives us a clue as to where you end up in your career path. Uh, I'm guessing it, it's – Sort of in the in the genes to get involved in service. It it is, and and also the itinerant lifestyle of moving from place to place, and every two or three years got in my blood, and I and then I then my dad got assigned to Germany, and, and we went there. I graduated high school from Munich American High School. What year did you graduate high school? And I'm asking that not to find out how old you are, but I I have a reason. 1978. Okay, so well before the wall falls, during the time when it is split, and people today can't even imagine what that's like. They don't understand at all. I remember going camping on the in a, in a forest on the Czech border with Bavaria, and people were warning us. You know the the Czechs and the Russians they come across the border and they kidnap people and drag them over into Czechoslovakia and. and interrogate them and don't release them for days. And I was going, wow, that's pretty scary. Mm. I never got to Berlin because it was simply too complicated to get the train tickets. And my dad had to have permission because he was a U.S. government employee working for the Department of Defense to even go to Berlin. And you only could go to Berlin either by by air or by the special trains. We were doing an event. We'll talk about it briefly, but we were doing an event very recently. We're taping this after the event. And we met the police officer from Watertown, Massachusetts, who was instrumental in stopping the terrorists, the, mass, the Boston Marathon bombing. The police officer, Jeff, great guy, was telling me about his role in the Army at a checkpoint alpha in Berlin. And he was literally 50 yards from the Stasi guard tower the East German guard there. Right. And he showed us pictures, and it was just surreal. It looked like something out of a sci-fi dystopian novel. Uh, and it was. Movie. Life for people in Eastern Europe was exactly that. I remember going to Yugoslavia for my 17th birthday. Imagine Yugoslavia, 
So we went to a resort called Bled, very famous place in what is now Slovenia. Mm-hmm. And we crossed the border into Yugoslavia from Austria, and it was going into a time warp. And I saw very narrow roads we were driving on, cars that seemed completely out of date. They were, in fact, out of date. They were Ladas. And, mm. and farmers working in the fields with animal-drawn vehicles. Mm. And I'm going, wait a second. I, I just transitioned back 100 years into the past. And looking back, do you think that all of this experience plus your dad's work, it really it touched your heart and influenced you to, to want to explore the world and want to be in service? And we'll get to how you got into the foreign service. But do you think all of these experiences led to where you are today? Oh, absolutely. They, those experiences shaped my life. It shaped my interest. I, mm-hmm. When I was a, in high school, I thought I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. I, I wanted to work on nuclear reactors. I wanted mm. to... I dreamed of making the transition from fission to controlled fission to controlled fusion, something that we're getting close to right now, and, I'm, right. and it's pretty exciting. And I, I went to had this experience in Germany, and then I went to college, and then I became interested in the world and interested in the Middle East, and gradually things happened. What was your first entree into all this? How did you, in other words, sign up, get into this field to begin with? So I actually started by following my wife. I was the accompanying spouse to when she went to Egypt on a graduate postgraduate fellowship ah. to work on family planning issues in, in that country in the mid-80s. And I did some odd jobs. It's very hard for an accompanying spouse to find work in a foreign country because of rule restrictions on, mm. on labor labor laws. Mm-hmm. You have to get a, the right kind of visa, you get all the right papers, and you effectively have to have permission from the mm-hmm. local government to work in their country. And that's fine. So it was, it was a challenging experience, but I learned a lot. My Arabic got really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just by osmosis, you can't help it. How long were you there? Two years. Okay. In Cairo? In, in Cairo, okay. yeah. Uh, certainly a culture change, a culture shock to go from oh, wherever yes. you were to a place like that. It's a huge city with lots of poverty and lots of issues. Yes. Uh, from Michigan to to Cairo, not only was it a big culture shock, but it was a big weather shock as that, well. Well, yeah. And it, you were t- talking about this recently, your various weather issues when you go from one climb to another. And you've been to all of them. So you're in uh, Egypt. You're working at helping your wife at get her stuff done. Right. Is that where you start for the U.S. government? No. You get your start? No, but it's where I talked with people who worked at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, and they basically said, Greg, yes, you should go and take the Foreign Service exam. Mm -hmm. That's how you get into the Foreign Service and into the diplomatic career. And I said, oh, okay. And... What is it, a bunch of true and false questions or essays or what are they looking for? Multiple choice. It was easier in those days. It was mostly multiple choice questions, but very hard, very broad. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the breadth of knowledge that you have to bring into that exam is is quite extensive from history, politics, uh, to management, economics, business, public affairs. And there are all questions in all six of these fields. And even some security questions nowadays that are part of the the career paths within mm. the State Department. 
So they're, they're vetting people what, as they should, people who are interested, who have the knowledge skills and the, the adaptability skills. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and so the test, I, I took the test the first time and like 95% of the people who take the test the first time, I failed. Okay. <laughs> so I went back and I, I, I studied and I, and I worked. And the second time around, I succeeded. I passed. And then you, you pass the first test, and then you get to go to the second test, which is, is an oral exam. And you, it's a day long. At that time, it was a day long event in Washington D.C. So, and and you're in. There's about thirty other people who are in your group, and mm -hmm. you're basically all auditioning together, individually and in groups. And there's a written element. And there was an inbox test, and this is I. This is so interesting because most of us just assume you get there when you get there, and there's a, a magical doorway that you walk through. But there's a lot of work. When you say oral, are they looking for uh, your ability to think on your feet, to to present, to communicate orally? Because uh, we're talking about relations with other people in other parts of the world. I would imagine that's important. Absolutely, you. And when you're speaking to people, generally, you have to think on your feet because mm. it's always an exchange, just like we're having a conversation now. When you sure. go in to represent the United States with a foreign government official, that foreign government official has an agenda just as you have an agenda. Mm. And you, there's an exchange going on, an exchange of information, and that you're, you're going to have to respond quickly and right. deptly and politely – to that individual's diplomacy intact. Yes, <laughs> and, and so the, they're testing for exactly that: can you communicate clearly? Can you think on your feet and respond mm -hmm. to difficult questions? So, Greg, uh, what was the first assignment once you passed all the various tests? You mentioned your interest in the Middle East, and it's born out of being in Cairo with your wife, I'm sure, and all that. But where did you end up? Uh, how does that happen? Uh, I, so you, you you get selected, yeah, and then you go to basic training to be a diplomat for nine weeks, and again it's another audition. Uh, and during that process, they're again seeing where maybe you fit best mm -hmm. in the State Department culture. So you get to give they they, they show you the list of assignments that are available, mm -hmm. and you bring a, a list of background and experience to that opportunity. And then they sort of assess and rank and choose where you should go. Do you, do you have any say in the matter? In other words, I would prefer, because I have an interest in the language or in the culture, to go to Europe or go to Asia or whatever, or, or is it pretty much their decision? You get to submit a list, rank okay. order the places you'd oh, like to okay. go from the list of places that are available. Okay. And so I w received my number two choice, which was to go to a lovely little country in Western Africa called the Gambia. Oh, yes. Yes. Small but important, as they all are. So was this uh, uh, happy news when you got that? Uh, it was number two choice. Was it okay? I thought it was fantastic. Great. And so we went to Banjul, the capital, and I still – Think of it as the best place I ever went in the Foreign Service. Tell us a little bit about 
that experience getting there and, first of all, what your role was, what your title was at that point. And, I mean, I, I can't even imagine the physical structures and settings. Maybe you can describe it. Uh, so the reason why I pursued this position was because it had multiple hats. It was this very small embassy. We only mm-hmm. had six people working in it, an ambassador and five others. And we had an aid mission and a Peace Corps mission. So 13 official Americans in the country and 40-odd Peace Corps. That was the American official mm-hmm. American community in the country. And so my job was to be the consular officer. So I – was the person who was doing interviews for visas, issuing visas, uh, whether they were for visiting the United States or to come to the United States permanently and get on track to become an American citizen, and then to help American citizens who needed the assistance of the embassy, mm-hmm. new passport mm-hmm. issues, things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. or people who were lost or, or students who run out of tra- are traveling and run out of money. That's the thing is we're sitting here and it's a tragedy uh, – what happened in Afghanistan most recently with stranded Americans and those with green cards and so forth. But there are Americans everywhere. Yes. As we speak. <laughs> it's true. And they get into trouble. I, I, I mean, I remember a young couple who walked into the consular office one day and said, we're, we're stuck. We have to be in Casablanca in five days and, and we don't know how to get there. Could we you know, hire a taxi to drive us from Banjul to Casablanca. And, and I looked at them and said, well, between here and Casablanca is a lot of desert. There is a war going on in Western Sahara. The Tuaregs are revolting in northern Mali and in <laughs> Algeria. And, by, and, and unfortunately, you can't cross the border between Algeria and Morocco because it's cl- been closed for decades. So the only way you can get to Casablanca from Banjul is by air and probably the easiest way is to get a flight out of Dakar in Senegal. So I know you can get a taxi from here to Dakar, but you're still going to need to arrange that flight from Dakar. And and and, and they said, but, but we don't have any money left. We've spent all our money. And I said, well, I suggest you – there's a Western Union office, Western Union office, mm-hmm. at, and I gave them the address. Call home and ask your parents to wire you some money to the Western Union office so that you get home. Gee, it was easier for uh, Rick Blaine and Louie in Casablanca to send somebody on that plane to Lisbon. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you said Casablanca. My eyes lit up because uh, that's that's the movie that everybody refers to in that in that realm. English, uh, we know, is a very popular language around the world. Was English also spoken by the people of, who live there? The, the official language of the Gambia is English. Okay. That's what there are nine other African languages found in that country, the largest or the, or the language that is most widely spoken is Wolof, which is also the language of – primary language of Senegal. Mm-hmm. And then the next highest language or le- next most prominent language is Mandinka, uh, a, uh, a language which you may recall from a TV series called Roots. Oh, yes, of course. I knew that sounded familiar. And, of course, Alex Haley believed that his right. home was in the Gambia. Mm-hmm. And he had tried to set up a, a sort of tourist center for Africans, to, African Americans, to come to the Gambia and, and explore their roots. I actually met his wife there, 
No kidding. In the in the in, in the Gambia. Yeah. There's there's so much uh, we could talk about because it's it's not just the the work the day to day work trying to help people both there and abroad, but it's it's being part of that society because you are even though you're an outsider you're an insider right so I mean you get to know the culture you get to know the people you probably get personally connected with friends and colleagues who are Gambians. I can tell you love it. I mean, I can tell that's part of the, the benefit, the real benefit that, of the job. That is that is what most people join the Foreign Service to do. It's to have that opportunity to interact with people who are not Americans to learn about the their culture, their lives, and then to have a have a an interaction that grows the relationship between the United States and the Gambia. And it starts all at the personal level and then it builds up as it goes up do, the chain. Do you believe as I do that uh, we in this country who just get dribs and drabs from news headlines uh, really don't know the full story of how Americans re- relate to the rest of the world? Professionals, I'm talking about our soldiers, sailors, Marines, Air they're doing so much more than just wearing the flag. They are doing what you did and what your colleagues continue to do. To address that with me because I think that's something that we need to rely, we need to relate to Americans here that there's a lot going on. Fellow Americans are doing a lot of really good things. I think you're right. I think uh, Americans by and large don't really see what goes on, what our diplomats, what our military personnel do in terms of building these kinds of relationships in having the ability to meet and interact and find out that people in the Gambia are pretty much like people in the United States. Mm. They, they, they want to get – they want to go to school. They want to get more knowledge. They, they want to get a good job. They want, want to, to get married. They want to, they want to have kids. Right. They want to have a house. They want their kids to have a good school yeah. and they want their kids to be better off than they are themselves. And if you look at the agenda of any American or almost every American, you would see it's pretty much the same. And whether an administration is one party or the other, uh, the service members, people like yourself, you serve the country. That's right. You serve the, the cause, which is uh, I, I think a more – basic overall American cause, which I think is is sometimes forgotten. And that uh, leads us to your other assignments. Let's talk about – we'll talk about Benghazi at some point. But what other assignments besides that have you had before leaving the service? Sure. I, I, from the Gambia, I went to Damascus, Syria, uh, which is another fantastic opportunity. I traveled all over the country. I, I am one of the people who have the benefit of going to Palmyra and seeing the ruins before they were so terribly demolished by the ISIS people. Mm. And I went to, after Syria, I went to Yemen. And of course, I'm appalled by the tragedy of what's going on there. These are two places that have been just destroyed and, and beset by violence and war for decades. So Gambia must have seemed like a a resort island is uh, a getaway compared to these places. It, it was idyllic in many respects. My life was going to work Monday through Friday. On Saturday, 
we went shopping in the morning, and we had a weekly American community softball game. Mm. Uh, and everybody showed up, and we had a grand time. And on Sundays, we went to the beach. And we stayed at the beach. And at the end of the day, there was a, a, a little restaurant. And we would go to the restaurant, and we would have fish. And Slightly different scene in Yemen and places like Damascus yeah. and so forth. Yes. Yeah, uh, tragic. Tragic what's happened in Syria, what's happened in, in, in Yemen. And then uh, I also, by way of... Uh, Washington and Bahrain ended up in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and so that's been another uh, terrible thing to witness. And so after, and then finally ended up by again via Washington in Libya. The Libyan experience. Uh, we won't go into all the the charges and accusations about political intervention, but we all know what happened in uh, 2012, September 11th, and it was such. Well, it it was. A horrible experience to lose our ambassador and and three other fine Americans who defended the embassy, defended the consulate so bravely. But let's just talk about what your role was, because you, according to what I read, you arrived about a month or so earlier. I, I arrived almost a month, probably five weeks mm-hmm. before the events that unfolded on uh, July thirty first. Of uh, twenty and and what were your uh, what was your assignment your role your title I was the deputy chief of mission so I was Chris Stevens number two okay and so my job was operational if you if you think about a company there's the CEO think of Chris Stevens as the CEO then there's the chief of operating officer that's the deputy chief of mission did did you know him prior I did actually I, I he came in to the foreign service in the class the the orientation class or the basic training class that followed mine. Mm. And I was in the in political officer training at that time before my, I went to the Gambia. And one of our assignments was to meet with some of the people in the incoming class and then write a short bio about the people we talked to. And, and two of the primary characters on the State Department side in the Benghazi uh, story were in that class following mine, Chris Stevens, the ambassador, and Eric Gaudiosi, who was the uh, consul, consul in Benghazi prior to, to what happened on 9-11. Mm-hmm. He wasn't there. He had, he had rotated out, and, and Chris Stevens was in Benghazi because his replacement hadn't arrived yet. So Eric is the author of the famous Guns of August cable that was, people know so much about. And I, I remember writing bios about both of them, and I said about Chris Stevens that this person is going to be an ambassador one day. Mm-hmm. I remember writing that in his bio. Mm-hmm. And I also wrote that Eric Gaudiosi is going to be uh, – going to rise very highly in the Foreign Service as well. So I, I've met two stars in, in that opportunity. What was your situation on the, on the 11th? So I was in Tripoli. Because Chris was in Benghazi, I was – in Tripoli and in charge of the embassy. And we were monitoring closely what was going on in Egypt and in Tripoli itself and also what was going on in Benghazi, just trying to, trying to make sure that we were all going to be safe. And so when the, I remember, I think I've said this multiple times, but when the sun went down, we kind of breathed a sigh of relief because we felt we'd gotten through the day. The, the protests, right? The alleged protests over the 
uh, cartoon or the film or whatever it was what, that was just pretty much a – Yeah, they, they, they didn't really happen in Libya. No, 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 exactly because uh, the attack was organized, planned and very strategically uh, initiated and very deadly, no question. So um, I'll, I'll get to – more questions about the aftermath, but I what where did, were you immediately taken? You and your team from Tripoli, or were you just uh, did you remain there at that point when all hell broke loose? When all hell broke broke loose, we were basically trying to galvanize help from the host government, from the Libyan government, to go rescue our people mm. because that was the Libyan government's job mm-hmm. under the Vienna Convention and on diplomatic affairs. And you know they just didn't have the capacity, and and so it was it was just a frustrating series of phone calls all night long mm. as people. And they, time matters because the yeah. attack is underway, and then you come back, of course, and you have the the great joy of appearing before a Senate panel. <laughs> it was a House panel, but that's a okay. House panel, <laughs> just as, just as serious, I suppose. Uh, but you were uh, in the spotlight, I guess. You, you've been written about and you had your moment in the sun, probably a moment you didn't really want to have. Not really. But you told your story, which got a lot of attention, your story about basically being let down. The, the service members weren't given the kind of security they needed. Yeah, I think uh, th- that story is pretty clear. The, the, our security numbers at the embassy on when I arrived were somewhere around 40 personnel. And on the night of the actual attacks, uh, they were at nine. Mm. And, and so it was including ben, the five in Benghazi. We had four in, in Tripoli. And, and so what uh, what has always amazed me has been the incredible – courage of the eight people who got on the airplane in Tripoli and flew to Benghazi, not knowing what they would find when they got there, not knowing if anyone was going to be coming to back them up or to help them. But they just got on that plane and went. Which is, I'm going to sound really corny here, which is so American in so many ways. Uh, and I'm an unabashed patriot, but I just it just speaks to what we do. We step in. We run up the stairs in the burning building or the building we, about to collapse. We, we run to the sound of the guns. Or we run yeah. up the. We run into the build, burning building, uh, as so many did in, on nine eleven yeah. in two thousand one, and, and, and we make go do what is necessary. One more question about Benghazi. Do you think since that tragedy and since that mishap, I call it mishap as a euphemism. It really should be since that uh, horrible. Uh, bureaucratic mess. Have we made changes? Has the has the State Department addressed these kinds of changes, in your opinion, for security, for beefing up, for listening to people in the field? I, I think that what happened afterwards at the State Department has been relatively positive mm-hmm. in that there's a much greater focus on security. There's a cost to that, though, and that is, you know, we talked about the ability to interact with the local populace, right? And it, particularly in these high-threat environments, the ability to do that has been pretty severely curtailed. One of my um, frustrations with working in Afghanistan for the year that I was there, which was 2006, 2007, was my relative inability to interact with Afghans. 
Was that be right before the surge or around the time of the surge? It, it was before it. Okay, so that was a tough time. We were really sort of reeling militarily because of the uh, the onslaught of attacks and so forth before we gained uh, the upper hand. So that must have been a challenging time to be in the public sector in that part of the world, as you say. Yeah, it, it was in in Afghanistan. My, you know, one of my jobs in, was agricultural policy. And one of our big efforts was to try to find crops that were more remunerative than poppy. Mm. And we were doing pretty good. But it, it, if, if you can't get out to visit the farms and, and talk to farmers and get your hands in the dirt, so to speak, of your portfolio, it, it's very hard to understand and advocate and, and make proper recommendations. And here we are 13 or 14 years later and we're hearing news of famine and uh, horrible starvation likely this winter in Afghanistan that's now in the control of these uh, these Taliban leaders. Really a shame. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because after your role ended in the public sector, you went into the private slash public sector. You work for a company – we've had Victoria Bondock, the founder and president on – I love her to pieces, and I know you guys do too, working yeah, with her. Absolutely. It's called Gemini, and it's uh, 30 years in national security, Gemini Industries. Uh, how did you get to that position, and uh, what attracted you to it? So it's, it's kind of, a, again, one of these evolutionary passages after I testified. Um, you know, the situation in the State Department was pretty tenuous, you know, Whistleblowers tend not to be well. Well, let's let's see if I can rephrase this. Whistleblowers tend to be in a in a relatively bad place in their in their jobs after they step forward. They're heroes to many, and you were, and you are. But you have a tough time going back to the office. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And and so you know, I, I kind of was able to opt out of the traditional path and I was at a think tank for a couple of years and then I managed to get uh, loaned to Congress and ended up on Congressman Devin Nunes's staff. And then so in August of 2016, I'm looking at the prospect of having to work for Hillary Clinton again. And that's, that prospect really didn't make me too happy. Mm, I wonder why. <laughs> and okay. so I – about this time, a, a job offer popped up to work as a contractor on a military diplomacy project for the Special Operations Command. So they were – I think it's pretty well public knowledge that among those eight people who got on that airplane to go to Benghazi on that night, Maybe been seven. Were two special operations mm-hmm. forces members, and uh, I, I just admired them so much. And I'd worked with them already during the course of my six weeks in the in the embassy. And and, and both of them received the number two decoration for service. the the uh, The Marine received the Navy Cross. He'd recently retired. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the army soldier received the distinguished service cross, mm-hmm. and, and so I I just respect the special operations forces of our country so much because they they're very similar to diplomats they they have the same kind of 
role in many respects. People think of them as guys who carry guns and they think of the Navy SEALs. But there's another aspect of Special Operations Forces, which is working very closely with their counterparts in our ally, with our allies and partners. So they're very much diplomats just in uniform. Mm. And so it was, it was a role that seemed natural. And so I, I retired from the Foreign Service and I accepted the job and I moved down to Tampa. And, and in the course of that job, Gemini Industries won the contract and I was hired by the company. And so I was the lead person on this contract for Gemini for three years. And then after that contract ended, Victoria was very kind and gracious and invited me to join her corporate team as the communications director. Which is where you are now. And it's so interesting you brought up the special forces because uh, at the event that we alluded to, it was a book event to promote her book and mine and both of us giving to various charities and hers and yours is uh, the memorial to special forces in Washington. Do you want to just remind us what that is? So the special operations forces memorial in Tampa is very much like the the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., in, in that it's a, a black marble wall with the names of all of the Special Operations Forces members who have given their lives for their country, either in combat or in training. And so it's a very meaningful place for people who have lost friends, colleagues, loved ones, family members serving our country and serving at the tip of the spear to keep us safe and, and free. And, and it's just one of those places where people can go and reflect and remember and gain peace. And there are a couple of names on that, on that wall that are important to me. Glenn Doherty and Ty Woods were two of the four who gave their lives for our country in Benghazi on, mm. on September 11th and 12th of 2012. Glenn Doherty is from Massachusetts. Yeah, I remember very clearly doing that story on the air and uh, hearing so much about him and Ty and just their – not just their courage and dedication but their humanity. They were great people. They were. They were just beloved by their colleagues. Yeah. Ty Woods' widow was one of the key people who persuaded me to testify. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It all ties together. But one, one of the things we'll close with is the fact that um, you – are still dedicating your life to public service. You're just doing it through uh, a private firm. And as I spoke with Victoria about this too, and I would like you to end this discussion on this, um, we don't realize how many individuals and corporations are working on behalf of the American people. And they're, they're corporations in business to make a profit, but they're also doing some very important and valuable work. And without giving away any trade secrets, you'd have to kill me. Uh, what else is Gemini doing? Remind us. Gemini right, Gemini right now is doing a number of very, very valuable activities on behalf of our country and on behalf of our national security. I love the f way Victoria characterizes it. When nothing happens, <laughs> we've done our job. Is that no news is the great news. No, yeah. Bad news is always right at the top of the list and you guys get the shaft, but when it's good stuff, we don't hear about it. Yeah, but we're, we're doing some very, very important work for keeping our country's technological advantage in the, in the military sphere. 
working for the United States Air Force and working for the United States Navy. And we're doing some really, really important work on uh, – you, you hear a lot about supply, the supply chain today, but we are working on supply, what's called supply chain resilience. Mm-hmm. We are working to try to help with concepts like onshoring U.S. manufacturing that has migrated away from the country. We're working on trying to make sure that, you know, in, in when the pandemic started, China had cornered the market on most of the personal protective equipment available in the world. They had gone out and deliberately bought it all up. And so we had to ramp up new production, find new sources of materials. And, and our companies experts were involved in that effort. And there's an old expression back in the 20s, 30s, guns and butter. And it basically means the government's role is to protect us, but also to ensure the economy moves forward. And everything that you're talking about relates to our security, everything. That's right. Our health, our economics. That's right. And, and, and there's certainly one way to look at the pandemic as potentially, I mean, if the lab leak theory is true and if if the the virus is man-made, mm. then you can look at it as potentially a biological weapon attack mm-hmm. launched from China. Right. Or, or not maybe launched. But unleashed. But unleashed. Maybe accidentally, but it doesn't matter. It's still a biological weapon. Correct. And I happen to believe that wholeheartedly. More evidence coming out. Well, listen, I have kept you so long and you've got a plane to catch. But I just want to say how honored I am to meet you and get to know you and befriend you. I think the fact that you're sharing stories about public service, giving us a glimpse behind the scenes as to what it's really like, that's so valuable. I think we need to educate all of us, including our young people. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I I cannot emphasize how valuable and how rewarding a career in the Foreign Service is. Mm. And I encourage everyone who has an interest— if you want to travel the world, if you want to meet other people that are not American and learn what makes them tick, what drives them to, to succeed, to be the people that they want to be, please go to the State Department website and find out how you can take the Foreign Service exam. And there, there's even advice on how to prepare for the exam. And the Foreign Service is looking for new people, and we need them because the world has changed. When I entered the Foreign Service, the Cold War was ending, and America's unipolar moment was emerging. Today, we face a multipolar world, a world that only three men that I know, that I can identify today, actually, who served our country as diplomats, as senior diplomats, ever lived in. Henry Kissinger, George Shultz. And, and Jim Baker. Oh, yeah. yeah. Three secretaries of state, all born before World War II. Mm-hmm. So before World War II, the world was a multipolar world. Mm. Several major powers. The other thing that I, I was reading an article today is that for the first time in our history, or at least since the 19th century, the possibility exists that the United States will not be the world's preeminent power. China may very well pass us. No one alive today has any sense of how to deal with that yeah. kind of a world. Yeah. So 
We need new people to come in and with new ideas. People also who are grounded in the history of the world, because human beings do things over and over again. And and, and so I, I really encourage this youth, the young people of our country, think about foreign service. Think about if you're interested in intelligence service. Think about military service. But come forward and and help keep our country safe and strong and prosperous. Well, that's a great message. And uh, I want to wish you a very, very successful time at Gemini. I know you're enjoying yourself very, very much. Again, thank you for your service. And uh, let's hope and pray that uh, people in the Foreign Service remain safe. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much, Jordan. It's been a great time talking with you today. Friends, to find out more about the work that Greg is doing with his fellow teammates at Gemini, visit Gemini-IND.com. That's Gemini-IND.com. I thank him and his colleagues who work so hard to protect this nation. Thanks as well to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, helping us as always to publish the podcast on all platforms, to my colleague and friend Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions where we produce this and dozens of other podcasts, and of course to you, an audience that's growing every single week, and I really appreciate it when you rate and review us and tell your friends about it as well. For more, visit jordanrich.com, and until next time, remember to be well so you can do good. Take care.